This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Tech Talk, made possible by TM1. It is Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. With his authoritarian nature, we're not entirely sure it was a good idea to ask Matt to put together a list of tech and science advances and breakthroughs to celebrate the 62 years since Malaysia's independence. But MSP is a show that takes risk, and Matt has promised to keep today's content WHO compliant unlike many of his business ventures. So, Matt, how are you going to do this today? Is it going to be the chronological order? Hey, Jeff. Um, no, I thought that would actually be a bit boring. Um, you know, as riveting as listening to me reciting a list of facts for <laughs> 25 minutes would be, um, I thought jumping about might make it a bit more interesting because, you know, it's also about looking at the way these disciplines are interconnected, these discoveries are interconnected, how one breakthrough leads to another, and how things that might appear to be unrelated actually spark these connections later on. All right, which means you have to give us an example. Very happy to. Um, For the benefit of the listeners, now I asked Jeff and a few other people to share some of their favourite moments in tech history over the last uh, 60 or so years. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is 60 or so. I thought it was 50 or so because apparently (laughs) I missed the last decade. Uh, But one of the things that came up on um, both of our lists was Photoshop, Um, the image processing and manipulation software released by Adobe be way back in 1990. Um, And that's really hard to imagine that Photoshop is almost 30 years old. Uh, I guess we'll have to give it an MSP icons show at some point in the future. Can't imagine using Photoshop back in 1990. No, can you imagine? I mean, what would it have been then? I mean, the, you know, the, the, the screens would have been, it would just have been like moving a line drawing around from one place Gosh, to another. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, obviously we're celebrating it as a breakthrough, but isn't Photoshop uh, one of those like, you know, to love, to hate it kind of inclusions? Well, yeah, of course. You know, I think most of the big software breakthroughs, including milestones like Microsoft Word and of course the Office Suite are very much in that love them, hate them category. Uh, And designers have horror stories about early versions of Photoshop, um, many of which are actually more about the state of computing back in the 1990s. You know, we had um, buggy, underpowered machines that would hang. We had graphics cards and processors that simply couldn't handle the load. Uh, We had really slow data transfer rates as well as rendering speeds. So the number of times I used to get stuck in the office because a page of a magazine was crashing the zip drive you know it used to take literally hours to download things Mm. Uh, yet photoshop though it's still a transformational tool yeah for all its complexity you know it transformed desktop publishing um, and we're talking you know the media industries it uh, changed fashion advertising it made it possible to easily easily manipulate uh, photos to color correct them and to give them a distinct look and feel and that's a legacy we carry over into products like instagram mm. and it's photo filters you know we take it for granted but to do what instagram does at the click of a button that used to take a lot of minutes if not <laughs> a lot of hours to do with early versions of photoshop And those same tricks could take a designer days to do manually with physical photos and negatives in the days before Photoshop. You know, all those clean looking social media posts against lily white walls. We owe all of that 
to Photoshop. And Adobe doesn't stop there, does it? Well, Adobe's a bit of a, an unsung hero of the early web. Again, still in that love to hate them category. Uh, Adobe Flash, oh, which, gosh, yeah. yeah, exactly, no one remembers <laughs> fondly, but it kind of powered the the web mm. in the early noughties. Um, much as we hated being prompted to download a new version of it, what seemed like <laughs> every time we logged on. Um, it's Adobe Reader software helped to popularize the de facto document exchange format, which is PDF. I mean, everything is PDF now. And a lot of the video editing software that sits benignly on our smartphone also owes a debt of inspiration, if not gratitude, to a lot of Adobe's products. All right, that's close to about five minutes on Photoshop. So are we going to spend the next 10 talking about vegetable peeler? Okay, I take the point, but no, um, because we've had the vegetable peeler since at least 1928. All right. So it doesn't fit into the format <laughs> of today's show. Uh, we could easily extend this week's show to an hour and not mm. even scratch the surface of what we've achieved since 1957. Uh, you know, we know all the obvious ones, the internet, the smartphone, Facebook. Uh, things in recent memory always seem to loom disproportionately large. But we forget that we wouldn't have gotten to anywhere near where we are now if it hadn't been for the integrated circuit. You know, what we now casually discuss as a microchip or a chip. The Internet of Things. Well, I mean, it's in everything in general. I mean, mm. think how cheap and ubiquitous chips have become. Uh, in the 1960s, semiconductor chips were cutting edge. Early computers and electronics like TVs and radios were reliant on valves and tubes. Uh, early computers required thousands of them. And suddenly you could shrink all of that down to a tiny chip. You know, there are plenty of uh, steampunk fantasies like the, the book and the movie Mortal Engines mm. where we live in a valve-filled future. Mm. But if that was our reality, you'd probably need, you know, half a football field <laughs> just to run your smartwatch. And you'd need a lorry trailer full of fizzing valves just to run the Bluetooth <laughs> in your car's entertainment system. So in a sense, the world we live in flows from there. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the Internet of Things, um, personal computers uh, and smartphones as well, obviously. But Medical technology, you know, the heart rate machines, MRIs, um, CGI, mm. uh, the cars we drive that don't break down every 20 kilometers. Um, look at what chips have done for industry and manufacture. You know, that breakthrough mm -hmm. by Jack Kilby at Texas Instruments paved the way for the digital world we live in now. You know, in some ways, the world up until that point was more closely related to the clockwork and steam-powered world of the 18th and 19th centuries. The integrated circuit was a bit like that boost of nitrous <laughs> in the Fast and Furious movies. Mm. Only we haven't stopped accelerating yet. You know, that boost is still moving forward at an ever-accelerating rate. And you mentioned cars. Is the microchip the most important thing that happened to motoring? Well, of course, you know, there are other things. Um, you know, the microchip is almost like the road. We still need all the bridges and the buildings and the houses. So it's not a straight line from, say, the microchip to the MRI. But you wouldn't have the MRI without the chip. So there are all these other jump-off points for technologies. And a milestone for car development and progress actually came in 1972. Actually, I know this because someone told me when I was in the US, it is the Chrysler's electronic ignition system. Yeah, mm. exactly. I mean, it sounds crazy <laughs> to us now, but using an electronic system to regulate the car's timing was revolutionary. Yeah. You know, we live in a world where you start your car with 
buttons, even apps, rather than with keys. Yeah. But up until 1972, and for a long time after, our cars were largely mechanical rather than electronic. And a lot of petrol hits might argue that those were the good old days. Yeah, but we hear a lot of blah, blah, blah about the um, the golden age of motoring, you know, mm. rotary engines, things you could fix with a hammer. <laughs> but, you know, anything you fix with a hammer, it's not fixed. It's just cowed. <laughs> um, and it will either die or at some point fight back. Uh, but, you know, even the, the unholy trinity of May, Hammond and Clarkson, mm. you know, formerly of Top Gear Motoring Show and now stars of the Grand Tour, they generally acknowledge that old cars are terrible to drive. Yeah. And the electronic ignition system paved the way for all the things we enjoy today. Efficient fuel injection systems, airbags, ABS braking, uh, traction control, very important in Malaysia where mm. when it's wet. Mm. Uh, you know, all those developments branch out from that simple adoption of the electronic ignition and timing systems. All right. So, so far, the examples have been more electronic. What's an example of more analog technology that has shaped our world? Well, how about the invention of the waffle sole running shoe oh. in 1971? So a track and field coach at the University of Oregon was looking for a way to boost his team's performance by making their track shoes lighter and faster. He wanted shoes that didn't need spikes, but would still give his athletes that grip. And... By chance, he looked at the grooves in his family's waffle iron and realised that they might make a great mould for the sole <laughs> of a shoe. And that's exactly what he did. He poured liquid urethane into a waffle iron and, hey, presto, uh, you have the modern running shoe. Uh, what did history do with that discovery? Well, that athletics coach was a guy called Bill Bowerman and... He, of course, is the co-founder of sportswear brand Nike. Mm. Uh, Nike's first shoe was called the Waffle Trainer, named for the discovery that inspired it. So you could argue that that discovery has helped to shape the cultural environment of today. You know, how many of our listeners are sitting there wearing lightweight trainers instead of the heavy dress shoes that were the norm in the 1970s? You know, how many of you spend more time in some form of sportswear than you do in formal clothes? Mm. Uh, and think about how those sportswear brands are now shaping trends and even materials technology in the world we live in today. Definitely agree. So the relationship between music, I guess, hip-hop especially, and sports, and then, of course, streetwear. Well, yeah, that's really important. I mean, the fact that we even talk about streetwear as a separate category shows, mm. you know, how far this has become a kind of cultural icon. Uh, the role that Nike tracksuits and Adidas shell toes played in the early days of hip-hop, for example. Uh, fast forward to today, you know, Sports stars have their own lines of shoes and clothes, as do plenty of cultural and music stars. Mm. Uh, Kanye West's Yeezy range is crazy, mm. both in terms of pricing and availability. Uh, his stuff gets snapped up in minutes every time Adidas you know, drops a new design or line. Uh, look at streetwear brands like Supreme, who drop new limited releases on an almost weekly basis. You know, these companies are embedded in our lives, and they've even taken on a political dimension. And uh, Look at Nike's ongoing support for the quarterback and civil rights activist, Colin Kaepernick. And... You know, you look at that path from run DMC to modern day civil rights, and that's a really <laughs> steep trajectory for a piece of rubber in a waffle iron. Which I imagine is going to bring you back to the Sony Walkman and the cassette that we featured in recent MSP Icons episode. Well, 
Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, so many of the moments that define us culturally and as societies are these kind of happenstance mm. brainwaves or inconsequential releases or even afterthoughts. You know, uh, I did an evening edition earlier this week on uh, fake holidays, you know, <laughs> things like May the 4th for Star Wars fans, <laughs> National Avocado Day, that kind of thing. As in you can create these moments, but it's people who decide whether or not they're successful. Yeah, because people have to make that decision. So in Tokyo in 1978 and 79, there was little demand for the Walkman. Mm. Um, and when it was first brought to the West, it was given really rubbish names. It was only when it was rebranded globally as the Walkman that it started to take off. Mm. But there was something happening culturally that lent itself to the explosion of the Walkman's popularity through the 1980s. Um, you can trace those connections, I guess, in part back to movements like punk and disco and hip-hop, artists making their own music and creating their own soundtracks and mixtapes. So you had this explosion of less corporate-controlled music and art. It's a celebration of the individual? Well, yeah, you know, we're putting on the headphones and curating your own experience and journey through the world where shutting yourself off from those shared experiences had suddenly become acceptable. Uh, Breakthroughs may come individually, but they don't exist in a bubble. I mean, you can look at Apple's Newton PDA, which was the right product at the wrong time. It was a smartphone prototype before the technology infrastructure could actually make any use of its potential. And that's kind of what makes this job and these shows so much fun because mm, mm. they're about people as much as they are about technology. Uh, not always, but by and large, we get to choose the technologies that do and don't stick. All right. When we come back, a technology that left its makers blue in the face until suddenly it didn't. Stick around. BFM 89.9. You're listening to Tech Talk, made possible by TM1. Be free, Malaysians. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Tech Talk, made possible by TM1. And we're back. It's Fun Friday together with uh, Culture Pop's Matt Amatej. And I think most people would have probably guessed from what I said before the break that what's next is the Bluetooth. Well, yeah, <laughs> this goes back to what I was saying about technology um, having its place. Now, before this show, I was outside talking to you and talking to Richard about <laughs> Bluetooth headphones. Mm. And that conversation took way, way longer <laughs> than it should. Um <laughs> But anyway, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, we get to decide what the place of technologies are and whether it's relevant to our lives. So mm. Bluetooth was developed by the Swedish communication spe uh, specialist Ericsson. It was named after an old Danish king, Harold Bluebeard. And it was launched with quite a lot of fanfare in 1999 as a data standard that could replace those awful RS-232 cables <laughs> that slowly transmitted uh, data from computers to printers and other devices. You know, I guess you could think of that early version of Bluetooth as kind of a tortoise speed version of Wi-Fi. And it's fair to say it wasn't an instant success. Well, from a consumer perspective, we mostly came into contact with it as a feature of cell phones. Uh, and of course, we heaped scorn and disgust on the people who sported those early Bluetooth headphones. Mm. Me. Mm -hmm. um, I've always hated wires on things, especially headphones. You know, I get 
tangled up and I tend to break <laughs> them. Um, so Bluetooth was one of those technologies that was perfect for me, but was ignored by 99% of the rest of the world. So what do you think tipped it over? Well, I think it was sim uh, similar to the Apple Newton thing. It was the right technology and the wrong time. To start off with, um, Bluetooth signals were mono, mm. so they were rubbish for music. We had to wait for infrastructure to catch up. So as smartphones developed, Bluetooth began to take on a more central role. It became the center of entertainment systems in cars and homes. Uh, makers like Apple are trying to do away with wired headphone ports entirely. And of course, as transfer speeds increase, all kinds of wearables and devices now use Bluetooth mm. to seamlessly connect to one another. It just took 20 years. <laughs> so far, we've, we haven't had much medical tech except those mentions of MRI machines. Well, you know, you could do this episode entirely on health advances. And mm. in fact, you suggested to me to do this episode on health advances <laughs> because there is so much technology. So mm. all we can do is really cherry pick them for today. Um, where do you start? I mean, there's the, the pacemaker in 1960. Mm -hmm. And Again, that was, you know, one of these unintended consequence um, discoveries. It came about when a guy called Wilson uh, Greatbatch tried to develop a heart monitoring device. He made a mistake with a circuit. He, uh, he actually got the device to emit a pulse rather than to, oh. yeah, rather than to, to monitor one. But he realized that that could be used to regulate irregular heartbeats. Wow. Uh, so that's a mistake that has probably saved millions of lives over the last 60 years. Uh, then we have as well coronary bypass surgery in 1967, uh, which in some countries has helped to drop the, the rate of heart disease by almost 50%. And what about medicines? Well, where do you start? I mean, statins were first developed in the 1970s. Tens of millions of people worldwide use them every day to reduce the effects and risks of conditions like hypertension, mm. diabetes, heart disease. They're cheap. They're reliable. Uh, then there's the protease inhibitors that came in in 1995. It's probably hard for some younger listeners to imagine, but the shadow and specter of HIV infection was an incredible presence in the, the, the late 1980s and throughout the 1990s. And in some parts of the world, it still is. And infection rates were soaring across the African continent. Yeah, in the, in the 80s and 90s, mm. for sure. Um, and, you know, that highlights how enormous a gap there is in healthcare globally. Mm. But condom use and aggressive sexual health marketing and education helped to curb the spread of HIV infection in a lot of developed nations. But if you were HIV positive a couple of decades ago, it was effectively a death sentence. You know, you might remain healthy for a number of years. But would it spread eventually? Yeah, I mean, it would eventually develop into AIDS. And after that, it would be essentially a waiting mm. game. So protease inhibitors were a game changer. It's a simple drug that can suppress the HIV virus. It blocks the enzymes that enable the virus to replicate and spread. And that allows people to remain healthy for decades. So it turned a horrible disease into a manageable illness. Uh, and like many people listening to this show, I know people that died of this disease. And I know many people who are alive and healthy today because of protease inhibitors and other developments in HIV treatment. All right. So how about something more recent like the Ebola epidemic a few years ago? 
Well, again, you know, we come back to those discrepancies in healthcare globally, uh, and we got lucky in many ways with the the last outbreak, mm. and we're actually seeing a reemergence of Ebola in uh, the Democratic Republic of uh, Congo, which of course is one of the world's poorest countries. But a lot of experimental treatments and vaccines were rushed out in 2015. Uh, there was a lot of debate of the ethics of trying untested drugs on humans. At the same time. Those trials can take years, but people are dying right now. So, you know, it's difficult. Um, but one of the success stories of that period was a technology called the hemopurifier. The blood filtra uh, filtration treatment. Well, essentially, I mean, I'm not going to go into the um, full mechanics. Mm -hmm. That's something that people can look up. But essentially, it's a single-use cartridge that's attached to a blood circulation pump. And it removes the virus from the blood before pumping the same blood back into the body. Uh, it has proved effective in the treatment of Ebola cases in the US. And it also has great potential for the future for the treatment of cancers and other viruses. So again, it may turn out to be a little like the microchip, you know, a base point for new developments and technologies to branch out from. Mm. I know you want to talk about food, but I think maybe we should stay away from the lab stuff. Well, yeah, there's plenty of other stuff to talk about. <laughs> um, we can go back to 1966 uh, and the breakthrough of high-yield rice. Now, we already had high-yield wheat strains, but this breakthrough using the Indica rice variety uh, was made at the International Rice Research Unit in the Philippines, and it meant that there was now a high-yield crop suited to the tropical and subtropical climates of much of Asia. And how would you describe the impact of a crop like this? Well, we live in an age of cheap and plentiful food, mm. but that's something that's new. You know, it's not something that's really been known or experienced at any other time in human history, unless you were a caveman who happened across a McDinosaur's drive-in window. Um, but we still see the effects of famine and food instability. And yes, I know cavemen and dinosaurs didn't actually live at the same time. Um, but we live in this time where food instability um, and famine are affecting poorer parts of the world. Uh, High-yield rice strains led to a 20% rise in global rice production in just the four years from 1966 to 1970. So its value to the tiger economies of Southeast Asia is probably close to incalculable. Um, how many famines this crop has averted is probably impossible to say. How many conflicts over food supplies have been averted? You know, who knows? Mm. So you're allowed one modern breakthrough in Frankenfood. Okay, I'll go for the plant-based options that are becoming more common, even in fast food <laughs> joints. So, you know, burgers and other products. So there was a story this week about KFC introducing plant-based nuggets to mm. its menu in some stores, which we will be covering uh, in Geek Squawks after the break. But plant-based alternatives don't necessarily make the food healthier. Uh, as a friend remarked this week, we've come obsessed with uh, wearables and step counts, but we think of them as an excuse to be able to eat absolutely anything without consequence. Uh, but at least these developments are a step in the right direction. Uh, they're a step towards swapping meat out of our diets as our primary protein source. All right. And we do have to address the social media-sized elephant in the room. 
there's a whole bunch of stuff we need for this part of the story, mm. which for reasons of time will have to be more of a list. <laughs> uh, 1969, ARPANET, the first computer network. 1970, fiber optics, which we now depend on for fast data transfer. 1974, the barcode, mm. which leads us to the QR codes that are increasingly ubiquitous today. 1976, the world's first supercomputer. Uh, 1977, the beginning of the personal computer boom. I think that was the um, the Apple II. The Apple II, yeah. Uh, 1978, GPS, without which no Waze, mm. no Uber, uh, no Food Panda. Um, Microsoft Windows and Office in the 1980s. And, of course, 1989, Tim Berners-Lee invents the internet with the standards HTML and URLs. 2004, Facebook. I know, we have to jump forward and <laughs> cut a lot out. Um, and as much as we heap vitriol on the big tech and social media companies, they have helped to shape an era. When you consider all the things you can do inside Facebook, it's quite amazing. You can share photos and videos, create memories and history, access news and information, sell stuff. Mm. You know, that pattern is repeated for Google and Amazon and Twitter and I guess even Snapchat. Mm. Uh, of course, you know, these tools are highly imperfect, but they have brought a lot of people a lot of joy. Uh, they've connected people across continents. And that kind of brings me to something I'm a little bit more conflicted about. Low-cost air travel? This is kind of a personal one for me, and I'm conflicted because of the environmental mm. cost of flying, but I can't think of anything in my lifetime that has done more to expose people to other cultures and other ways of life, um, to bring exotic, perishable foods from one side of the world to another, to move organs around for transport legally, I mean, mm -hmm. um, loads and loads of stuff that sounds trivial but connects distant places. So, yes, it means more people going on holidays they maybe don't need to, to take or to, to go so far for mm -hmm. or flying for meetings they could actually do over a phone or video link. But to a kid who grew up in one of those one road in, one road out villages, the idea that the Internet could give you access to all the information in the world – while low-cost flights could let you physically travel to almost any place in the world. That's just something I can't let go of. Mm. Do you have an honourable mention? Yes, my wife brought this one up. Um, and this is more about discovering things that already exist. So mm. we talk about extinction events and the number of species that are disappearing. So the discovery of new things, uh, new species, is especially exciting. Uh, that might be from the new vistas we're opening up with deep sea exploration and uh, aquatic species that have never been seen before, but also mammals. Uh, since the uh, year 2000, we've identified marsupials, primates, sloths, rodents, bats, and even a new species of clouded leopard. Uh, somebody even figured out that the African elephant is actually two distinct species. So it's the African bush and the African forest. Mm. Uh, there's a giant pumice island currently floating around somewhere near the Great Barrier Reef that has most likely been created by an underwater volcanic eruption. Hawaii is expanding. Uh, a new island was created in Tonga's island chain in 2014. You know, these discoveries help to remind us that we're really insignificant compared mm. to what the planet can do and that we have a duty to do what we can to preserve the flora and fauna of the planet we live on. Which reminds me, you haven't mentioned space. Well, this is another wonderful thing about us as a species. You know, we've only been going to space for 60 years and mm. we're already talking about 
building Mars colonies. Um, so, yes, we don't have time to talk about them, but satellites, moon landings, space shuttles, the uh, International Space Station, mm. reusable rockets, the Mars rover, private space companies, the Hubble telescope. You know, I know a lot of people think that space exploration is pointless and costly, that there are so many other <laughs> things to fix on our own planet. And yes, that's true. But space, the stars, beyond the sky, you know, these are the things that we dream about, the mm. things that remind us that however great our achievements, we're just a tiny part of a vast and ever-expanding universe. And it reminds us that there is always something new for us to learn or to create or to experience. There you have it. Looking back at some of the milestones in technology and science since 1957, uh, as a tribute to Malaysia's independence uh, for the 62-year independence. Uh, we'll be right back with Geek Squawks after this, BFM 89.9. Tech Talk, made possible by TM1. To learn more, visit tm1.com.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.